Welcome to the New Books Network. In the US and Western Europe, left-wing parties that have succeeded in winning power have tended to head for the centre. The example of the UK Labour Party since 1979 is often put forward as a prime example. The record goes lost, 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 lost. Tony Blair, Tony Blair, Tony Blair, won three times and then lost, 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 lost. But what does heading to the centre actually consist of? And are there other ways in which left-wing parties can win? Well, I'm joined now by Eunice Goes, Professor at the Richmond American International University in London. Welcome to you. Hello. Very, very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And let's just look at the picture across Europe as to where things stand. I mean, do you think it's fair to say the left is in retreat? I think it's perhaps slightly unfair because things were worse 10 years ago, uh, where uh, most of Europe was governed by the right and by centre-right parties. There's been a bit of a revival. Uh, All of Scandinavia, bar Sweden, is now governed by social democratic parties. Portugal and Spain is governed by social democratic parties. So there is there there's some Germany, very big, very big and important country in Europe, is also governed by uh, a left-wing, centre-left coalition if we essentially turn the blind eye that the the liberals are not really left-wing, but they are part of the coalition led by the Social Democrats. So there's been a revival of social democratic fortunes in the last uh, six years or so. And I think there are chances for an improvement of those electoral prospects at the next general election in Britain, which might take place uh, later last year in 2024, at the latest in 2025. Labour is in a good position to be the next government. At least this is what the opinion poll suggests. So there's been, it's a story of retreat, which is the story and the history of European social democracy. For most of the 20th century, social democratic parties were in opposition. Occasionally, they were in power. And when they were in particular circumstances, they uh, brought transformational changes to the European countries they governed. If you take it as as, as a a 20th century story, let's do that. Uh, So over the last, let's say, 100, 120 years, what is the, the, the history of left-wing parties in that period. You're saying they've only occasionally won power. Is that universally true throughout the continent? I think with the exception of Scandinavian countries, and in particular Sweden, where the Social Democratic Party was in power for most of the 20th century, uh, in most uh, European countries, Western European countries in particular, the left was in power only sporadically. So uh, it's not a story of success. And the story of the social democratic parties has been one where because they fail to be elected, they are constantly revising their social democratic uh, programs. And so becoming more centrist as they go along. Right. Well, that is obviously a very important question. Is Is the comment I made in the introduction that victory has tended to involve going to the centre, is that always true? No, it's not always true. And I think the more we advance in European politics, especially 21st century politics, that is not really the truth because we are witnessing uh, an increased fragmentation of party systems. And when you have very fragmented party systems, 
to be in the center is not to the advantage of uh, center-left parties. We've been see- seeing this in Spain. Spain is a very good example where we see a social democratic party that was extremely important for the process of democratization uh, in Spain. And uh, this is a party that is now sandwiched literally between the radical left, the parties of the radical left that are very, very popular, and uh, the radical right and the far right. So the, the parties of the center, including the parties of the center right, are struggling at the moment in this era of highly fragmented party politics and also very radical, very angry politics. Yes, an increased populism, right, on left and right. Exactly. That's exactly that. And social democratic parties, so the positions of centre-right, centre-left parties become very difficult. First of all, they deal with an ageing uh, electorate because the young are voting either for the radical left or some newcomers on, on the right. That is the, uh, the, the case in Portugal. Social democratic parties are not attracting young voters. And that becomes a problem because it becomes a bit of an existential crisis if you don't attract young voters voters who's going to vote for these parties uh, in the future. So social democratic parties historically have always had to think about new electoral strategies because they were never able to win majorities based on the support of their so-called core voters. And those core voters have changed historically. They used to be the working class. Then you started to to add to that mixture public sector workers, some freelance intellectuals and so on who voted for social democratic parties. But as we advance in the 20th century and 21st century, building that coalition of support becomes more and more difficult. Right. But I want to just push back a bit because you said when I said... um... Yeah, do you need to go to the centre to win? You very firmly said no, and then referred to the current situation where these populist parties are squeezing the centre. But if you look back over that uh, century and 20 years, what are the examples of radical left parties winning? The examples of there are very few example very few examples of radical left parties winning, I think with the exception of what the 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 popular front government in France, at uh, the beginning uh, in the first half of the the twentieth century. So there's no, no examples. But what they can do is eat away support for social democratic parties. So this essentially prevents social democratic parties from winning majorities. So handing victory and power to the centre-right. So that has been a classical problem. And the other problem with centrist strategies is the centre is not a fixed position in the party system. This, the centre is whatever the conventional wisdom of a time decides to be. So it is highly mobile. And in some instances, that centre is clearly centre-right. And this is essentially when things become quite problematic for social democratic parties because their core voters or voters that had in the past voted for them, uh, they essentially see that they don't. Ha- there's no difference between those social democratic parties and also the, the, the centre-right parties. And, and this, is, this is what becomes problematic for, for social democratic parties. That's the, clearly the, the situation in France. In Spain, we are seeing this, and there's going to be a test uh, later this year with the Spanish uh, general elections. So in these multi-party systems, highly fragmented multi-party systems, it is extremely complicated and difficult to find what is the right formula to hold on to some of those ordinary voters normally seen as centrist, but also 
to keep those voters who are more ideologically committed, who are clearly left-wing, many of them socialists, who are who vote on the basis of ideology and left-wing programs. It's also important to keep them on board. Right. So there's a paradox here because you've just pointed out that um, in the last few years, the left have been more successful in Europe. And yet you're also painting a picture that says radical parties don't tend to win. And increasingly, centrist left parties can't win because of being squeezed from both ends with populist right wing and left wing parties uh, and ideological left wing parties as well. So is is that a contradiction or how do you how do you resolve that problem? It's not a contradiction. It's essentially a reflection of the highly fragmented nature of party politics. And it's not only center-left parties that are being squeezed out. It's the center-right too. Because you have, in, a, in, in party systems where you have a whole variety of voters voting for a larger number of parties, it becomes very difficult for any of these parties to win a majority. This has been the reality of Scandinavian politics for a very long time of Dutch politics also for a very long time. But for countries like France, Spain, Portugal, and so on, this is a kind of a a new phenomenon, the kind of the hyper-fragmentation of the party system. And in this scenario, it is much more difficult to win a majority. You can no longer rely on being on the centre, placing yourself in the centre. And in the 1990s, placing yourself in the centre meant supporting policies like flexible labour markets, further globalisation, all policies that led to the erosion of labour security and so on. And that led many voters to question, why are we voting for these parties? They are behaving like centre-right parties. So that is clearly a problem. And that is also the, the reason why younger voters who are feeling very ignored and neglected by mainstream political parties at the moment. This is the reason why they are not voting either for the centre-left or for the centre-right. Mm. And so before we um, get into the, 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 you know, what's happening now with, with this um, fragmentation, let me just ask as a sort of side question, it, it, what you describe as you know these, these left-wing parties not being able to get a majority now, is particularly true, I guess it's, it's quite ironic this, but in, in proportional representation systems, whereas in the UK, where you know you can win 33% of the vote or something, and I'm not got the numbers exactly right, but you can win low 30s and get a big majority because of the first-past-the-post system, that almost advantages the Labour Party in the UK compared to some of its European counterparts. In theory, that's true. But if you look at the politics, the results of elections of the last uh, 12 years in the United Kingdom, I think we need to you know, re- revise those co- assumptions more carefully because first past the post delivered a hung parliament in 2010 mm. and again in 2017. So... First past the post is an electoral system that historically has awarded very big majorities to the most voted party. But fragmentation of the party system has also affected British politics. Britain is, by all effects, a multi-party system. The weight of the, the Scottish National Party should not be neglected. It is essentially been preventing the Labour Party from winning a majority. And the Labour Party that is now what with what twenty points ahead in the polls, it is not yet sure if they are able to win a majority in the House of Commons because of first past the post, and in particular because of Scotland. The position of Labour in Scotland is still quite weak. So we do not know if Labour will be able to win that landslide victory that it actually needs. 
Yeah, it does produce all sorts of distortions. And, it, it, and, and small small shifts in percentages can make a huge difference, can't they? Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so, but OK, looking at the, the, the populism, let's just start with the right wing populism, which is so ascendant in Europe. And actually, you know, I want to know why it's happening and what you think about it. But first of all, how big a trend is it? And what at their most? And I guess it's Italy, is it, where they have come through strongest? What, what are the sort of numbers? I think most European party systems in most European countries have quite strong and quite popular uh, radical right parties. Uh, if we look, look at East Central Europe, uh, they are in power. And, and not only they are uh, radical right parties, but they are uh, a huge threat to a democratic institution, in particular the powers of parliament, the, pow- the, pow- the powers of the independent judiciary to be a kind of a counterweight to very powerful executives. So this is the, the, the power and the threat of the radical right is something to be reckoned with and it is something that social democratic parties need to, to consider when delivering their and, and developing their electoral strategies. This does not mean that they need uh, or should copy the populist messages, in particular with regards to immigration policies, asylum, and so on. If we look at the root causes of uh, the rise of the radical right, and there are quite a lot of studies establishing that correlation, those parties have become very, very popular at the moment of economic crisis, at the moment where voters feel extremely insecure, economically insecure, but also culturally insecure. Since the 1990s, European societies have suffered dramatic changes and uh, voters are still trying to make sense uh, of what those uh, changes mean to their own lives. And so that the, the rise of insecurity has create, has opened uh, a space for the, the radical right to emerge and to capitalise on that sense of insecurity. You would assume that uh, economic insecurity was the territory of the left, you know, finding policy solutions for that, being concerned about it, that that would be something which left-wing parties would do better than right-wing parties and that right-wing parties would be more concerned about immigration. Is that not the case? And why has the left lost this argument to the right on insecurity? It is a very, that's, I think the answer to that question would solve uh, a great part of their electoral uh, problems. In Europe, the, 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 the lack of concern with social issues, I think it can be mapped to the 1990s, not only the creation of the single market uh, in the European Union, but then the launch of the monetary union. The, the role of the European Union in developing this kind of politics of insecurity uh, should not be neglected because though there was also an emphasis on promoting cohesion. In reality, the single market and then the the, the creation of the, the, the monetary union uh, across the European Union has pushed national governments to implement policies that are all about economic liberalization, keeping tight budgets, but no investment in the social sphere. So there's been a neglect of the social dimension of European uh, European integration. We saw that uh, in the early in the early 21st century, well right after the global financial crisis of 2008 with the imposition of, of austerity measures, very harsh austerity measures and many social 
democratic parties were involved in the introduction of those austerity measures. So the social democratic parties did not really think through what support for the monetary union meant, uh, what kind of macroeconomic policies they could do. They believed that they had more room for maneuver than they actually had. And, and then, of course, the result was very, very visible. For instance, in Portugal, when the socialist government that had the majority at the time was implementing a very harsh package of austerity, well, they lost very, very badly in the following election. And still in 2015, voters had not forgotten the role of the socialists in bringing austerity to Portugal. And in 2015, the socialists were only able to form a government because, well, there we had a cunning socialist leader who was able to carve up a majority in parliament with the support of the radical left. Yes, but I guess the you know the the obvious challenge to that is that uh, many European uh, countries are highly indebted, and as Liz Truss found out in the UK when she was prime minister for a few weeks, uh, when you try and spend more, take a non-austerity approach, uh, the markets won't have it. The nature of the single market and the monetary union was one that did not favor social democratic politics. The policies of the monetary union are policies that prevent social democratic governments to invest from investing in welfare policies or in the infrastructure, education and science, all the areas of the economy that require huge investment, none of those will be allowed to grow under the Eurozone governance rules. There is a strong conservative, neoliberal or order liberal bias in the, in the construction of the Eurozone that has not favoured social democratic solutions. If we add to that the preference also of the European Union for labour market policies that have weakened the power of trade unions, labour market policies that have essentially have favoured the precarity of the labour market, the precarity in working conditions of huge uh, a huge percentage of the labour force, none of this favours social democratic parties. And so the social democratic parties that went along with those policies and that during the, the global financial crisis were even intensifying the pain to their voters with bringing in more austerity. That sent a very strong message to voters in particular, the voters that had traditionally voted uh, social, democratic part, uh, social democratic. Yeah, well, that's one way of looking at it. But I mean, surely that, that, that part of the story has to be, doesn't it, that European governments, uh, as I said, are just too indebted. And that means that it's not possible to invest in some of the social programs that are wanted, that, that, that uh, many voters would want. And, and that is the constraint. I mean, you give the example of Greece, but Greece was you know, massively overspending. And, and the European Union, in a way, had the fiscal discipline to control that. I mean, it may have mashed it up since then and made Greece's position quite impossible. I mean, I can see that because Greece can never get out of its debt trap now, you know, as, a, as an example, really, to other European countries. But uh, the, the fact is the, the origin of the problem was overspending. 
Well, there are two problems with that analysis. First of all, there is the, the, the question of Greece, and the situation of Greece was quite exceptional uh, within the European Union. Yes, levels of debt are in, in Portugal are high, but they are much higher in France, and that is never seen as a problem, and higher still in Belgium. There was a moment where actually Belgium was seen as the weaker link of the Eurozone. So it has to do, it's not a question, a, a question of the high levels of debt, but how markets judge the cap- capacity of those countries to pay out those debts. The other aspect with this is that will the European Union force member states to implement policies that will increase that debt, because essentially that's what happened. If you are forcing governments to implement uh, economic policies that will bring you down to recession, that is not going to reduce your debt, that is going to increase your debt. And that's essentially what happened to Greece. And that's essentially, that was the nonsensical policies of the Eurozone. And I remember when the the socialist government uh, in Portugal was at some point on the verge of being punished by the European Commission, being issued a fine because the deficit targets were way above uh, what the European Union uh, wanted them to be. Well, those targets were uh, higher than they should have been because the government was doing exactly what the European Commission had asked them to do. To do so, the European Union cannot have it both ways. Uh, cutting public spending. It's not the same as reducing debt. There are many ways of reducing debt. And there's the other question with debt is putting all in the same basket, public and private debt. And sometimes public debt levels are manageable. It's high consumer debt that it is problematic. So th- these, are, these are things that need to be taken, you know, piecemeal, each element taken in consideration. And of course, what is the standing of each, the way that financial markets uh, assess each member, member state. France, for instance, has been able to violate the deficit rules of the monetary union, I think, for most of the time of the eurozone, uh, and that is not never seen uh, as a problem. In fact, there was a famous Luxembourgian prime minister, he was president of the commission, and he used to say, well, France is France, so that's fine. So th- there, are, there are lots of problems in um, in the design of the monetary union, I think most American political economists can find it completely nonsensical the way that the monetary union works, because there is no, there are no mechanisms for social solidarity. And what the other thing that the monetary union has done is that it has increased economic divergence between the different European countries when it was supposed to have contributed to convergence. So there is a design flaw in the monetary union. And I think there are at the moment, the European Commission has made its proposals and there is a lot of thinking, rethinking happening in uh, German political economic circles with a view to design a monetary union that actually helps member states to grow economically and to bridge their the inequality gap in their own societies. Now, what about the politics of this? Because many of the centre-left parties in Europe are very pro European Union, and they are not standing opposed very clearly anyway, if at all, to the European single market or even the single currency. So do you see, you know, the appeal of Europe as a place of tolerance and international understanding, a project which has helped bring uh, peace and prosperity to Europe as something which the centre left is, is you know, got, a, got a problem with? Supporting the European Union and European values is not a problem per se. 
it is a question what kind of Europe. And the European Union is not a monolith. The European Union has had uh, different shapes and different directions. Uh, we've seen the neoliberalization of the European project since the, ni- the, the 1990s. And that is essentially, this is when the problems began. But there has been, since the pandemic, and I think some lessons were learned also with the management of the global financial crisis, uh, there is an understanding that the, the emphasis on markets and the neglect of the social dimension of economic policies uh, have led to uh, the rise uh, of the radical right uh, in many European societies, and that the rise of that radical right is actually posing an existential threat to the stability of the European Union. And so there's been a, 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 a kind of a change of gear. We can see that in the rhetoric of the president of the European Commission. She's been emphasizing very much the idea of social cohesion, a more cohesive Europe, all the reforms, uh, the next generation funds that have emerged uh, in the wake of the, the pandemic are also trying to address that gap. Now, of course, this all of this is, taking, is going to take some time to uh, come into action. But there is a recognition that the, the, the impact of these economic policies and these macroeconomic strategies have had a damaging effect in the social and political fabric of European societies. And so this it, it is from here that social democratic parties need to learn and actually they need to take advantage of this change of debate. There is literally a window of opportunity to make the case for a more social Europe. So this does not mean that we need to reject the European Union, but in fact, to try to lead the European Union in a more social democratic direction. Of course, what you're saying assumes that it is possible for Europe to get higher growth. You know, there's a whole question of whether that's desirable for environmental reasons. But let's say we're putting those to one side and the objective is to get more growth that can be shared more equitably. But can Europe get growth? Maybe maybe the problem is that Europe has reached its high point. There are now international challenges and the growth is just not there in these mature economies to, to to be had, whether you're a left-wing or a right-wing government. If that is the case, it is the case for, I think, for most of Western uh, uh, economies. I think there will be... Well, quite possibly. Uh, yeah, quite so possibly. not only yeah, not just, only for Europe, yeah. but also for uh, North American economy and sure. economies and Austra- Australia and New Zealand. Well, there was a lot of the big economic growth of the 1990s that was an economic growth that was somehow artificial because it was economic growth that was pushed by consumption and consumption that was uh, based on higher levels of debt. So that's why we now talk about not so much about economic growth, but about sustainability and sustainable levels of growth. So I think economic growth, it is possible, but perhaps uh, the rates of economic growth uh, will not be as big as they were in the 1990s, but perhaps it would be more solid. There's also a shift in debate in terms of creating economies that are sustainable and generate uh, well-being. And if, if the, the European economies are doomed, well, this here we have the concentration of a highly skilled workforce, lots and lots of economic resources. So it would be a massive waste if different European countries would essentially would decided to give up on that. And I, I, I'm not seeing that happening. No, but I'm just wondering whether left-wing parties, if they want to get onto the front foot, the challenge may be to cope with uh, declining living standards, not increasing them. 
I think that is a false dichotomy, this idea that you can only grow if you undercut the, the wages of workers or you, you reduce your welfare state. I th- I'm not, not saying that. I'm just saying if there's no growth, then the, the challenge is how to live in more in poorer societies. Yes, I think this is something that they will have to, to, to face. But at the moment, the emphasis is actually is on generating the, those inv- the investment in the areas that will generate growth, be it the, the, the scientific fabric uh, of European societies, the investment in renewable energies and more environmentally friendly uh, energies. That's essentially where the investment is. If we don't believe that this is going to generate economic growth, we might as well, you know, slit our wrists and give up. Don't don't, have to be that bad, I'd have thought. But anyway, uh, so so, uh, let's um, sort of, we've had this diversion into Europe. It's been very interesting. And also, you know, the the issue of how sustainable these growth targets are. But if if you look now at the left, it seems to me that, you know, you've discussed populism on the the right a bit. And uh, that is splitting right-wing votes in Europe. So should advantage the left, which has traditionally been more subject to having split votes. And yet it's coming at a time when the left is also uh, getting probably more split votes. Would that be about right? Yes, though there is variation in different uh, European countries. In France, for instance, it is clear that the Rassemblement National of Marine Le Pen uh, has clearly eaten away quite a lot of socialist uh, support. But the socialist party there is also being squeezed by the radical left parties. So that's literally a socialist party being sandwiched. And we don't know what will happen. There's going to be local elections in the spring in France. But the socialist party do not seem to be in a very good position to kind of to win them. It is Mélenchon, Jean-Luc Mélenchon from the radical left, who is essentially the leader of the left in France. In Spain, we see a similar uh, constellation. When, on one hand, the Communist Party becoming extremely popular, and they are in a coalition with the socialists. But at the same time, Vox is capitalizing votes uh, in Dalusia, and the centre-right parties, Partido Popular, is actually making a comeback. So we do not; it's not guaranteed at all that the socialists will win uh, again. In Britain, the situation is very different because we have a first-past-the-post, and also different demographics. The Labour Party gets most of its support from kind of younger voters. In most European countries, social democratic parties, the the average age for their support is over 45, over 50. So quite different constellation. And this tells us that national circumstances matter a great deal for the development of electoral strategies each country has a different uh, as a faces different problems faces a different radical right challenge that has to do with migratory flows and traditions of migratory flows but also public cultures the role of the media and so on and this of course makes it very difficult to come up with a kind of a recipe that will fit every social democratic party and it will work uh, for every social democratic party. But what some studies have shown is that in most cases, pandering to the conservative views of radical right voters or more conservative voters, this normally disadvantages social democratic parties. So the the advice that is often given uh, to social democratic parties in this instance is actually to remain committed to liberal values, to remain committed to social democratic policies on immigration, on issues around lifestyle, support for democratic institutions, and so on. I'm I'm really surprised you say that. I mean, where is there evidence 
that taking a liberal line on immigration helps a left-wing party? I didn't say taking a, not necessarily a liberal line on immigration, but on lifestyle issues, questions of, of identity, around sexuality and gender. These are clearly areas uh, that are uh, the social democratic parties have an interest in main, keeping themselves in that lane because the voters who support more conservative views, they are not going necessarily to vote social democratic parties. Yeah, but that's interesting what you say about uh, those 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 uh, gender issues and so on. That that's sort of interesting. But on immigration, which is arguably the you know anyway, it's it's a very important issue uh, for many European voters. I'm just unaware of a, a liberal position on immigration helping any anyone. It is in, in term, electorally. But uh, so let, let's turn it the, the the situation the 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 point around. And so it's not that it's a, a liberal position perhaps will not necessarily help them, but an illiberal position will not help them. And the electoral results have shown that social democratic parties taking harsh positions on immigration have not resulted in victories because normally the voters who support those views, uh, they are not voting social democratic parties. And so what, when, what, when that happens, the traditional social democratic voter will not turn up and vote social democratic. They will vote for the radical left. That's essentially the bargain. So it's, it is a question of balancing out which votes you uh, can you afford to lose in the election by taking a harsh, a harsh stance uh, on immigration. So the, the position of the Labour Party on, on this issue is actually somewhat tactically clever in a sense that they have been muting their positions on immigration as much as they can. So trying to avoid those issues and focusing on social economic issues. Yeah, just try and talk about something else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but on on your broader point, you know, not just immigration, but generally saying that the tactic for uh, social democratic parties moving to the right and uh, taking some of the positions of of right parties doesn't work. I mean, it 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 worked for Blair. Well, it worked for Blair, but uh, that's the the from t- two thousand and one to two thousand and five, the Labour Party went on to lose uh, uh, support. So it might have worked in a situation, the late nineteen nineties, a period of high growth, a period where politics used to be much more simple than it is now. Immigration was not really an issue then; other issues were not really uh, that important. Uh, so. Blair won and won big because uh, there were a number of factors that helped the, the victory of the Labour Party. It was not just the magic uh, of the new Labour uh, solution. And then in, in uh, that, that same strategy, kind of third way social democratic strategy, it resulted very well in those elections in the late 1990s. But social democratic parties continue with that same strategy in the 21st century, and they started to lose very, very badly. So I think we have to learn some lessons from that period. The policies of Blair work because there was high economic growth. So it was okay to say we are not taxing the rich, we are not doing redistribution because the levels of economic growth were generating enough funds for the public purse to invest in healthcare, in education, and so on. Now, the problem is when that economic model, that economic strategy is no, lo- no longer working. So if you don't have that economic growth, how can you invest in those public services? So that is essentially the question. And that was essentially the dilemma. This was essentially where the solutions of the third way or the new labor, this is a program that had a sell-by date. It worked for a particular context, 
but we're not we're no longer living in that reality anymore. That's, that's so interesting because it takes us back to the question I asked you earlier about whether we're in a low growth era and the challenge looking ahead will be, you know, which parties can understand how to manage that and, whether, you know, left or right. Yes. What, what is clear is that economic, economic growth cannot continue to be based on the exploitation of workers, the increasing precarity uh, in the labor market, and increasing levels of inequality. And I think even the OECD and the IMF, which are not exactly social democratic institutions, have reached the conclusion that you cannot generate economic growth with very high levels of inequality. The high levels of inequality that many European societies, and Britain is perhaps the the most unequal uh, European society at the moment. You cannot have economic growth with those high levels of inequality. Now, I don't know if you've made a study of this or, or read much about it, but you know, when you read the diaries of the strategists, the Alistair Campbells who, who helped Blair and, and others in, on the centre-left, and, I mean, and, and certainly those on, on the uh, more radical left, they all complain about the media and the concentration of ownership by some very right-wing media owners who control the output of a significant amount of the European media. How important is that? And, and, and what is the left strategy to deal with that? That is actually the most, the, the most serious obstacle that a party like Labour faces. Because if you don't have, if the Labour Party cannot rely on a sympathetic media coverage by most of the newspapers, and newspapers are still the ones who dictate the tone of the national conversation. Uh, That is extremely important. This is essentially the make or break to win an election. The media are extremely important to set the tone of the conversation. The way that political parties and party leaders are covered by uh, the the main uh, media organizations, they impact the way that the ordinary voters pick up and and learn about politics. So if on a daily basis, voters are being presented with an image of uh, a Labour leader that is perceived to be either as too radical or unpatriotic or not very competent or uh, can't eat a bacon sandwich. This was the case of uh, Ed Miliband. That is, that is going to have a cumulative effect in the way that the voter perceives those those parties and, and, and the way that they are going to vote uh, on election day. So getting the support of the media is extremely uh, important because the negative coverage is extremely damaging, is in effect, in effect an obstacle to electoral uh, victory, and and I think in the European in the European environment, the question now is not so much about media owners uh, who want uh, right wing governments in power, though that might very well be the case, but the fact that the mo- when you have radical voices uh, on TV on a regular basis, when you have shouty debates on TV and radio, there is really no space for sensible debates about anything. Uh, so this is to the disadvantage, not only to the, of social democratic uh, politicians, but of centre-right politicians too. Mm. It, it hurts the centre again. Absolutely. So, so is anyone, I mean, I, again, I mean, you know, you could say uh, Blair found an answer to that. He did a deal with Murdoch and the Murdoch press swung behind him. And, and I think he would think and his media advisors would think that was a very important moment in their 
path to victory. But would you think that anyone else in Europe has worked out how to deal with the right-wing press? Uh, no. <laughs> no one has been able uh, to deal with the, the right-wing press because also uh, nowadays it's very easy to set up TV stations, online publications and so on that very rapidly develop a very strong following. If we think, for instance, the emerge the phenomenon of Eric Zemmour in French politics, this radical right politician that was a presidential candidate, uh, he came out of nowhere. He was a guest in a talk show in a barely known TV channel. Well, the way that he talked about politics, very radical, that led to his meteoric rise in politics, but also the meteoric rise of that TV station. So if politicians in general, parliamentarians of all parties, do not consider and think seriously about questions of media regulation, uh, free speech, how to monitor the public sphere so that we have a healthy public debate and not one filled with hate speech. We are, we are going on a very, very ugly path uh, in European politics. Yeah, but what you've just said is very interesting because you know, over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, the left has said that it's these media owners who are the problem and you know and they have been a problem for the left no doubt but what you've just said there which is sort of reflected in, in the US as well is that channels which don't really have any owners you know on social media and very easy to set up cheap TV stations are getting a massive resonance in a way that doesn't depend on a proprietor it's just from the people I mean, yeah, which again prompts a question which many people are puzzled by. Why are populist left-wing channels less successful than populist right-wing channels? Yes, uh, <laughs> that, that is a very good question because, of course, there's no, not enough money. There is always an imbalance in terms of support. And so, yes, it is true that most people, anyone can set up a, a, a blog or a cheap radio or a station. But you actually, in order for that TV station to take hold, you need a lot of finan- you, you need big financial backing. Uh, and this is essentially what the radical, radical right has managed to attract. Zillionaires who have uh, put their money in those uh, media ventures and who have allowed and facilitated uh, the transformation of of, of public discourse on a whole uh, range of areas. For the left, that has always been a problem because the media, uh, and in particular the free media, is associated with capitalist uh, economy and capitalist economic models. And of course, those media owners on the whole do not like social democratic or socialist policies. So that has that has always been that has always been a problem and I don't think there is an easy answer for this. But I don't know. I mean you just described a, uh, someone who went on TV said some some crazy things which appealed to right-wing populists and the channel grew on the back of that. That wasn't money, that was message wasn't it? And it, it, it does seem that you know it's not just a question of having rich owners now, it's a question of having messages which uh, you know, not 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 a majority necessarily, but significant numbers of people want to listen to, and the right does seem to have more success with that than the left. And it's it's not just not just the money setting up a channel. I mean, right wing radio shows, which are very cheap, are much more successful than left wing ones. Yes, they are because it's 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 a formula of uh, channeling uh, uh, hate uh, unless you find ways of regulating 
not telling lies. That would be a good starting point. If if there are if there are ways of regulating free speech, and by the way, this is uh, goes way beyond my area of expertise. Uh, if if you don't find ways, uh, yes, social democratic parties will always have a problem in dealing uh, with the media. They have p- perhaps to find ways of communicating with voters uh, differently. Let's just look ahead to the future. Uh, you, you've, you've described a situation at the beginning in which centre-left parties have um, had more success in just the last few years than, than, than before. Where do you see it heading? I mean, there's so much change. It's so quick, the change now, in terms of the shifting uh, party allegiances and so on. What, what do you foresee? It's very hard to foresee because, as you just said, the situation is changing rapidly. We are not in a period of economic growth. Uh, There's a cost of living crisis affecting the whole of Europe. There's a war in Ukraine as well uh, that has been going on for uh, close to a year. And all of that, that is having a massive impact on on European uh, uh, economies. And that, of course, limits the, the space for c- coming up with innovative uh, and creative policies that will reduce the inequality gap across Europe. So it is very, very hard uh, to, to imagine uh, a different political constellation. I think we, we are seeing, and I, this is perhaps the science that we need to hold on to, there is a change uh, uh, in the way that European leaders look at uh, economy in how the European economies are uh, uh, evolving, there is a, a much greater emphasis now on investment in infrastructure, in tackling the climate emergency. Uh, there's this big uh, investment, an ambitious p- plan of investment in, in that infrastructure. And it's essentially hoping that infrastructure will reduce the levels of insecurity that so many European voters feel and that with the the, the reduced sense of insecurity, voters are no longer as fearful and they are perhaps more hopeful. And when when people uh, are fearful, uh, they are essentially voting for perhaps more dangerous candidates. They are voting with thinking in a more selfish manner. If things are a little bit more uh, stable, they can perhaps be a bit more optimistic and empathetic Well, Professor Eunice Goes, thanks very much for giving us the benefit of all your thinking about uh, the prospect of the left in Europe. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me.